Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I'll be your guide to explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. Today's episode continues our multi-part series on the Ozarks. Sure, you think you know about the Ozarks, the home of Branson, the Bald Numbers, and the Beverly Hillbillies, right? Well, in this series, we'll talk about the Ozarks, a region covering roughly half of Missouri as a cultural identity, as well as a physical place. So, come along for a trip to the Ozarks. Our guest today is Susan Croce-Kelly. Presently, she serves as managing editor of Ozark Watch magazine. Uh, she has also spoken and written extensively on the history of Route 66, including Route 66, the highway and its people, and our focus for today, Father of Route 66, the story of Cy Avery, both published by the University of Oklahoma Press. Welcome to the Our Missouri Podcast, Susan. Thank you. Thank you for letting me be here. Now, what first drew your interest to really the history of Route 66? Actually, a couple of things. Um, my mother, of course, was was the emphasis, I guess. She grew up in southwest Missouri in um, Dade County, and her grandfather had a farm that fronted on Route 66. I grew up in Kirkwood. And when I was really little, like four or five, I can remember her saying that the blacktop road a couple of blocks from our house was the most famous road in the world. And at four or five, you begin to know that your parents are fallible. And I remember listening to that and thinking, you know, that's not true. She's just telling me that. Well, of course, she was right. And over the years, when we would go back to see family in Springfield, I would hear stories about the highway, um, which were kind of fascinating. Later. As an adult, I was a reporter in Springfield, and there's a piece of the old highway that goes back like a time machine into the 1930s from from Halltown over to Carthage, old Route 66, the interstate is south of there. And I heard story when I was a reporter, I would hear stories about the gangsters coming in from Oklahoma and different things about Route 66, and I would ask people, well, tell me more. And they would say, well, there's still people that remember. So I came away from there thinking there really needs to be a book about this old road, but it also uh, needs to have really good pictures, and I wasn't that good of a photographer. And later I met a photographer who was enchanted by the architecture of the old building. And between her picture-taking and my former journalism, I said, we got to talk to the people inside those buildings that you want to take pictures of. And that was a great combination because we found businesses on Route 66. And we'd go in and say, tell us about your business. Well, that's not threatening. Besides, you might buy something. And then pretty soon we would hear about their lives. And we did, we researched for about seven years. We traveled, she took pictures, and I interviewed people. And we learned that Route 66 was all about business. And we ended up advising people, a, a television crew from from England and other people who we're trying to knock on doors along Route 66. Well, if you just live along Route 66, you're raising kids, going to work, not paying a whole lot of attention. But if you're running a gas station or a cafe, 
boy, you pay attention to everything going on in that highway because you want every one of those people to come in and spend money with you. So that's a really long answer, but that's kind of how it evolved from just kind of a fascination with the stories that I'd heard into a real fascination with what the road was all about. And it really, it has that kind of long history of, as you mentioned, kind of the importance of life along the highway and then kind of later on people kind of seeing it go by and not thinking so much about it. But where did the origins really of this book, Father of Route 66, come from? How did you move from this earlier work kind of documenting the, the landscape to writing about someone who was so crucial in its construction? When we were interviewing the, the cafe owners and the, and the, <laughs> the snake farm owners and, and the motel people, uh, it became apparent that this was a really important road. And it also was real clear that it went through western Oklahoma and the Texas Panhandle and the Illinois cornfields. And you say, why is this road important? Because it's not always in the prettiest parts of the United States. And we said, we began to ask people, how did Route 66, why is this, you know, what is it about this highway? And um, a couple people told us, and they used the same word. The words, they said, Cy Avery invented Route 66. Well, we had to go back and find out what that meant. And I became fascinated with Cy. We learned enough about him when we did the first book to be able to let people know that he was Ozark's, I mean, Oklahoma Highway Commissioner in the 1920s and was involved in a national group that laid out the national highway system. And he was involved in laying out the national highway system and making sure that one major road went from Los Angeles to Chicago. And then later he gave the road the number 66 after a big fight in Washington, which was kind of interesting. And then he and a fellow in Springfield determined that if you're going to have a road and you want people to travel it, it has to be paved and people have to know about it. And they started the Route 66 Association and began to publicize the highway, the main street of America. Um, so that, that is all in a nutshell in the first book. But over the years, I thought, you know, I bet Cy Avery's life would make a good novel. You know, I, I just think he was a really fascinating guy, and it was a fascinating time. It was like now when the whole world was changing, except it was cars and mechanical things. Unlike now, it's the electronic world. Um, but I'm a... I'm a writer for hire. I'm a journalist. And I tried writing a novel and it didn't work. But um, it turned it into a biography of Cy and the times that he lived in. In preparing for that book and kind of prepping for it, obviously you have to know about his life. You have to know about, you know, the construction of the road. So where did you go in terms of archives and kind of research to kind of find out about his life and about what he was doing to help bring about Route 66? Well, I was really lucky because uh, 20 years before I had written the first book. And so I had seven years of research uh, back before the internet, which involved talking to people. And then when we, uh, when somebody would tell me something that involved a date or a place or an important person, I'd have to go back to the libraries to verify it. And mostly it was the St. Louis public library and the Washington university library. And I can remember sitting on the floor reading um, uh, oil company 
public publications, gas station journal, where they talked about, you know, you can really get people into your gas station if you have clean restrooms or I or free ice water. And began to learn about the the I guess the culture of the highway. Um when I then launched my investigations into Sai's life for the biography, I was fortunate enough to make to meet three of his grandchildren and um the find out that his papers were at uh, Oklahoma State University in Tulsa. And that was the core of my research was the OSU archives and um then uh Cy's grandson who was named after him, uh Cyrus Stevens Avery the Third. And Stevens was a big help. Uh, I also spent time at the National Archives in Washington and with some road historians at the Smithsonian. Um those are the main places that I that I, I did research. <clears throat> okay. Um, now, from the very beginning, as we kind of shift into the book a little bit, you know, roads are obviously important. If you're going to write a book about kind of the person behind Route 66, a road is going to be very important. But the road that Cy Avery took for, to Missouri and really to what becomes Oklahoma or what is called Indian Territory at the time from his home in Pennsylvania is a quite of a long journey. So how does he make that trip from Pennsylvania into the Ozarks? According to his family. And that's the only information I have. Uh, he and his father, I should backtrack, his, there was, he was born in, in 1871. And in 1873, there was a huge depression in the United States. That's when the railroads and the banks all went bust. Father lost his job or lost his income. And they decided that going west would be the best thing for the family. So when Cy was 13, he and his dad, uh, took a covered wagon and moved west. They went down through southwest Missouri to the very south corner, southwest corner, and went across 30 miles into Indian Territory near what is now Jay, Oklahoma, a very small town. And um, they rented or they bought property that had belonged to Stand Weighty, I think is how you say it. Uh, he was a Cherokee Indian who had been a Civil War general. Uh, Confederate Civil War general, and that was the property, and that's where he grew up until his mother and sisters came about four years later, I think, and his mother lived there for a year and then decided they needed to go back to civilization, and they moved to Knoll, Missouri, in um, McDonald County, but he came in a covered wagon first, so he experienced bad roads with oxen and horses and mud and other wagons back before we had automobiles. And then as he grew up and cars came along, then he continued to experience bad roads. And I'm sure that the need for better roads was part of his part of his life from the time he was 12 or 13. Yeah, and really, as he becomes kind of a, a young adult and, and begins to get kind of active in portion of the Ozarks, there is a campaign going on in Missouri, uh, quote, pull Missouri out of the mud. Tell us a little bit about that campaign and what it was trying to do to improve transportation. Okay. He was uh, living in Oklahoma. He lived in Veneta and then Tulsa. And he went over to visit his, his mother in um, Noel. And the whole state was at grading roads and 
um, smoothing roads and improving the roads. At those days, there were no paved cross-country roads. Cities had, you know, brick roads and little bits of pavement here and there, but the cross-country roads were all dirt or dirt and gravel. And um, it, you add a car to a muddy road, and then you add 10 cars to a muddy road, it gets worse and worse and worse. And so there was kind of an obsession in, in the southeast and the west to improve the roads. And um, when Cy got to Missouri, like I said, the governor had proclaimed a day to get Missouri out of the mud, a holiday. And um, the 250,000 men gave up their jobs for the day to get out and do road work. And people brought in um, companies volunteered road grading equipment and pickaxes and all the rest of things so that the roads could be improved. The governor of Kansas came over and he and the governor of Missouri drove, I think, a, a road grader for a little while, and long enough to get their pictures in the paper. And um, um, they got national publicity. Apparently, this was getting the country out of the mud was a known phrase by that time, but this was apparently either the first state or one of the first states that went to work in a broad-based way to do something about it. And um, they had the idea that if they could get people out and grade the roads and make, make the dirt packed down, that everything would be well. Of course, that didn't turn out to be true, but um, Missouri people were really, really behind the idea of better roads. Before we return to our conversation, here's Danielle Griego. The 62nd Annual Missouri Conference on History, hosted by Lindenwood University and sponsored by the State Historical Society of Missouri, will be held March 11th through the 13th, 2020, at the Double Tree by Hilton Hotel in Chesterfield. Paper, panel, and student poster proposals in all fields of history, including public history and historic preservation, are invited. The conference is particularly interested in proposals for complete sessions including panelist, chair, and commentator. All proposals should be submitted no later than November 1st, 2019. For more information about the Missouri Conference on History, please visit shsmo.org mch. Start networking with other history professionals now on social media by using hashtag mch2020. Now, the fact that he's kind of in Oklahoma uh, and not, he, I mean, he has family in Missouri, but he lives in Oklahoma. How did that campaign as well as kind of other national efforts to kind of create more standard roadways inspire his own work on construction and highways and really infrastructure at the time. Right. Cy had been involved with um, Good Roads Association. That was kind of the national grassroots groups across the country um, that were pushing and eventually lobbying for better roads. And they wanted Congress to spend money, and Congress wasn't sure that they had the right to spend money for things they saw as, as internal state issues. But as uh, concrete paving became available, it was too expensive for anybody but the federal government to be able to afford. So that's just a little bit of background. But in Missouri, when Cy was there, like I said, this got all kinds of publicity, and he was mightily impressed. He was also impressed with one of the one of the pieces of equipment people were using, which was called the split log drag. And it had been invented in 1907 by a guy up in North Missouri named Ward King. And what King had done was take logs, 
split them in half, and hook them to chains, uh, which were pulled behind horses with the flat half of the logs facing the horses. And if the roads were damp, and I know this from people have said, people who remembered working with them said, not dry and not real muddy, but if the roads were damp, they could smooth out the roads, flatten them out, um, fill in the holes by, by dragging these drags across, across the mud, the damp dirt. And Cy went home and brought at least one split log drag, plus instructions for making more, which um, he put to work in Tulsa County, where he was uh, county commissioner, chief county commissioner. And he tried to talk the governor of Oklahoma into having it out of the, out of the mud day. Uh, didn't get very far, but he did get uh, several counties in northwest Arkansas. I mean, I'm sorry, northwest Oklahoma. Um, to go to work, and they considered it very successful day that in in road improvement. Um, as I mentioned, um, as concrete roads became available, well, the first concrete cross country pavement was laid in 1909 in uh, Wayne County, Michigan. That's where Detroit is, so it's not much of a surprise. But that was the year after the Model T was introduced. So you can tell roads were having to catch up. We had the progress in transportation ability, but we didn't have the progress in the roads that, that all these cars and uh, other other vehicles could travel on. And the road people in Michigan laid a couple miles of concrete road in Wayne County, and it became a kind of a national showplace for people like Cy, who were working in other states, to come and look and see if concrete roads were really as good as everybody said. So um, he came back and sponsored some, some um, road bond bills for Tulsa County, became very active in road building in Oklahoma, and um, um, well known. About this same time, you had, I call them the do-it-yourself highways, the Old Trails Highways, the Lincoln Highway, Jefferson Highway, um, Cy was involved with one called the Ozark Trail Association of people saying, we've had enough, we are going to make the roads better. And people in little towns or big towns um, would get together and they'd say, okay, we need a road from Columbia to Jefferson City, a good road. And so they would call it maybe the Jefferson City Columbia Snowball Road, I don't know, something. And they would enlist people along the way in the communities to divvy up money. Um, for advertising and promotion and get people to volunteer to grade the roads and keep them passable. And there were about 200 of those roads in the country uh, by the time we began to get national highways. But Cy was involved with a number of those. And because of that, he became more and more well-known. In 1925, he was appointed Oklahoma's first state highway commissioner. Now, you have to remember, when Cy started this, Oklahoma wasn't even a state. 1907, you had Oklahoma statehood. So it took the legislature a while to decide that money, that highways were a place that they needed to spend money. But in 1924, uh, 25, he was appointed Oklahoma state highway commissioner. And that put him in a position to build the roads all over the state, which he did. And then he was on a national committee in 
a group called the American Association of State Highway Officials, which was people like him and state highway engineers from all over the United States who had a chance to get together in Washington and talk about road conditions and what they could do and share information about what they had done that worked and what didn't work. But um, one of the things that they decided was that it was past time for the nation to work together to develop highways so that people could get from California to New York or from Texas to Chicago or from um, Topeka to Memphis without getting lost. Because up to that time, each state had kind of its own boundaries for the road. In 1916, the feds had, had uh, um, voted funds for the first federal highway, highway bill, and they appointed uh, road paving matching funds to the states, but they didn't say where those roads would go. So you had a situation where you might be driving north through Missouri going to Minneapolis, except when you got to the north border, the pavement would stop. And in Iowa, they had built a north-south road somewhere else. And um, besides that, there was no rules for national signage. So people got lost all the time, and they got stuck in the mud, and they had to be pulled out by oxen and, and horses, and it was, it was still a mess. And in 1925, the state highway officials, you can still follow this convoluted dis description, but the state highway officials petitioned the Secretary of Agriculture and said, we need a national highway system, and we need to work together to get it done. And he appointed two dozen men, they were all men in those days, to a joint board to take the roads that existed, to take the maps and figure out which ones would make the best thoroughfares across the country, north, south, and east, west. And Cy was one of the 25 men. Another one was Frank Sheets, who was a highway engineer from Illinois. And another one was a man named Pipemeyer, who was the state highway engineer in Missouri. So you have Oklahoma, Missouri, and Illinois. Sounds like a roadway, doesn't it? And um, Cy was part of the group that would go around and they'd talk to state highway officials in the different regions of the country, and they developed a national map that had the north-south roads and the east-west roads, the key ones. And um, when the map was finished, one of the roads, instead of going from California to the east coast, it went from California to Chicago, and it went through Tulsa and Springfield, and St. Louis, and on up to Chicago. Um, everybody seemed to be fine with that. And then Cy was put on a committee for numbering the roads. They had decided that the old name roads was A, cumbersome, and B, that you'd get into all kinds of politics if you picked some of the name roads and didn't pick some of the other name roads. And so they just decided that they would number the roads. <clears throat> Me. So Cy was one of five men on a committee to number the main roads, and they decided that the east-west roads would be um, known, the, the major east-west roads would end in zero, um, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, so forth. So you knew if you were on a Highway 10 that you would get from one side of the country to the other. And the north-south roads, because there were more of them, would end in five. Um, so you had five or one. So you had Highway 1 on the East Coast and Highway 101 on the West Coast, and then all the, all the other numbers in between. And they met in St. Louis 
do the numbering. When they got finished, uh, size road from Los Angeles to Chicago had number 60, 60, which had been decided that those would be the numbers that would go all the way across the country. Uh, but again, nobody seemed to care, and they voted at the National Association to accept the map, to accept the road numbers, and then they sent it out to the states for final approval. When the governor of Kentucky saw the map, he went nuts because there was no zero-ending highway going through Kentucky. And the zero-ending highway that should have gone through Kentucky went to Chicago. This was a big – it's hard to believe that this could be a big deal today. But it was a huge deal at that time because roads were so very important. And um, the governor of Kentucky first said that the mob must be involved if Chicago was the end of the road. And then he said Kentucky would just ignore the new map and just forget about the whole thing. And then he stormed to Washington and got a hold of the Kentucky governors, I mean, the Kentucky senators and congressmen, and went to the Bureau, Federal Bureau of Public Roads and everybody else that he could find and said that this was a terrible thing, that Kentucky was an old and honorable state. And it was being besmirched because it didn't have a zero-ending highway. Well, then, of course, the um, committee, the Federal Bureau of Public Roads and the committee said, well, we'll change it to 62 for Cy Avery's Road, and you can have 60. Well, then Cy and Pipemeyer and Sheets went to Washington and got their congressmen involved and their senators involved. And this fight went on for about six months. And... <laughs> From what I know of Washington, probably everything else stopped. I don't know about that. But it was a, a big deal. And finally, the head of the Bureau of Public Roads wrote to Cy, or the, the second command actually, wrote to Cy, and he said, look, we have been with you all this time. We've done whatever you wanted. But if Congress gets any more involved in this uproar over the number of the highways, we're not going to have a federal highway system. And I don't think anybody wants that. Can't you do something? And so Cy let it stew for another month and a half or so. And then he and Mr. Pipemeyer in Missouri met in Springfield to try to figure out what to do. And Cy had the state highway engineer from Oklahoma there as well. And they thought about it and talked about it. And um, Cy was, he wrote about this, but he was a little vague. I don't know you know, exactly what they said. But they decided that probably politics would prevail and the governor of Kentucky would get highway number 60 eventually. So they said, all right, he can have 60. And then Cy turned around to um, his state highway engineer and said, well, we've numbered all these highways. What numbers are left? Because they had done the major roads and then the secondary roads and so forth. And this guy went through the numbers that were left over, the two-digit numbers, and he said, what about 66? And I guess they talked about it a little bit and decided 66 sounded pretty good. And that was where the highway number came from. It was kind of, I guess you'd say, an afterthought. But it worked pretty well. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about, you know, when we think of the highway, the major highways that go through the Ozarks in Missouri, you know, 60 is one that runs, as you said, uh, really from southern Missouri on the western side all the way over to the eastern side. Uh, and to know that story of going in through Kentucky, but also, yeah, how 66 comes to be 
as a number that just sounds it sounds so good in some ways when when they when they came up with it and when they say it now of course uh, interstate 44 has kind of taken that over in that construction but when thinking right. about um uh Cy Avery and his time as highway commissioner uh, that is one example of it not being easy to be highway commissioner but as you point out in your book there are some other examples as well where you know political pressure and things like that kind of get the best of him and and kind of get him out of office so uh when he leaves office as as highway commissioner, you know, how does he spend the remainder of his days, you know, his life along this highway that he has helped create? Let me go back before while he was still highway commissioner. He was in Springfield for uh, a gala opening of his friend John T. Woodruff's hotel, the um, Kentwood Arms. And while he was there, Woodruff took high, took Avery at to where the road was being paved. And, you know, they talked about it. They, this is going to be a great highway for the country, and it's going to be terrific for Oklahoma and Missouri. And I think it was Woodruff who suggested, you know, we had these booster groups for the named highways. We ought to have a booster group for Route 66. And so they sat down and got in touch with towns all along the route of this highway and called a meeting and formed the Route 66 Highway Association with the two purposes. One was to get the road paved all the way across the country. And actually, that didn't really happen until 1937. Uh, And the other purpose was to make the road famous. And Cy was an old promoter. He was a a spellbinding um, speech giver and um, enthusiastic and gung-ho and tireless. He'd talk about roads most of his life, and he wasn't about to quit. So they organized the Route 66 Highway Association with 100 uh, towns along the way, people from 100 towns along the way. And Woodruff was elected the first president of the organization. The meeting went on, and then all of a sudden, the size stood up, whipped out a $5 bill, and said, I want to be the first member. And I suspect that was not the first time that he upstaged Woodruff or anybody else, but be that as it may. The organization uh, was important to what we know today as Route 66. Cy stole a phrase from another one of the old named roads and called 66 the Main Street of America and just went from there. They promoted the highway. They put ads in national magazines. They um, printed maps. and and. Um, I have a copy of a map from the 1930s when Cy was president of the Route 66 Association. But uh, they, it's an interesting map because it has the names of all the towns along the way. And because cars were what they were in those days, it also has the elevation of the towns. And I understand from people who know more about cars than I do that back in the early days on some of those dirt roads uh, in the mountains, you had to back up. Because the car cars weren't equipped to be able to go up those hills, and um, so it was important to know, uh, you know, what kind of what kind of a terrain you were going to going to encounter as well. But the Route 66 Association existed in some form or another, I think, up through the 1950s, and then of course in the last 20 years, there's been historic Route 66 associations started in all these states through which Route 66 goes, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, 
little tiny bit of Kansas, Illinois, and then on, there's all those historic Route 66 associations and national organizations trying to keep the spirit of Route 66 alive. Thank you very much for, for joining us today. It's a fascinating book. I really enjoyed, especially uh, the discussion you had about the origins, really, of the name of Route 66. I think people sometimes think that highways just get names, but there really is a history and a story behind uh, even something as high, a highway designation and its, and its, and its number. Yeah, that was, that was just fascinating because we had been told, like I said, when I did the first book, that Cy Avery invented Route 66. And um, to write to Mrs. Lon Scott in Tulsa, she would know. And so I hunted down Mrs. Lon Scott's address and wrote her a letter. <laughs> Basically, I didn't know who she was, but we understand that Cy Avery invented Route 66. What can you tell us? And she said to get in touch with Ruth Avery, who was Cy's daughter-in-law. Um, Mrs. Scott was the widow of the man that the Route 66 Association hired to promote Route 66. So he and he was for Springfield. He was a Nozarker as well. Um, but we met Cy's daughter-in-law, and she had all of his papers before the family gave them to uh, Oklahoma State University. And I remember sitting in the floor of their living room and reading through all this stuff and finding Sai's discussion of how the road was numbered. And it was like, oh, my gosh, you know, who knew? Just like you said. And I, that was the genesis, I think, for my real fascination with Sai and that whole time period, because you just think roads are just there. And in most of the world, they are because they, you know, they started with animal trails and Indian trails and just eventually became the main road. And in this country, it was so new, uh, the, the, our society was so new that we leapfrogged the uh, technology for building roads with the technology for getting places. And they just became so incredibly important. So I think it was an exciting time in this country if you weren't, if you weren't in the buggy business. <laughs> That's true. Well, thank you very much for being with us today. Sure. I hope I hope that you can make something of all that. I get pretty wound up when I start talking about Route 66. If you're interested in more of the people, places, culture, and history around our Missouri, please check out the State Historical Society of Missouri's website at shsmo.org. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.